what's happening in the canine industry. For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Hey, you know what we haven't done for a long time? Dance together. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we can arrange that. But the other thing we haven't done for a long time is new ads. Yeah, okay, let's do that. Yeah, let's do that. All right, we've got to start with the OG. We always start with the OG. Yeah. But he's good to start with. The odds are wiener. Yep. The wiener himself. Yep. The original sponsor of the show, Mm. the man who wanted to sponsor us from episode one and we told him to fuck off and then later we're like, hey, we'll take some of that money now, please. (laughs) Grumpiest but most lovable prick you could ever meet in your life. Yeah. It's the Ides of Wiener. Yep. Jason Furman, Mm. Ironswick Dog Quip. If you're in Australia, that's where you're getting your stuff. Yeah. Crazy if you don't get, pretty much, if you want dog stuff, get it from there. Have you seen that he hand makes a lot of his stuff as well? I've seen that. He tags me in his Instagram. I I know. Me too. I see it. Using his sewing machine. Yep playing his songs. He's really embracing social media these days. Yep. He used to have nothing at all, yep. a shit website, yep. but now, now he's got a working he's website and social media. I like watching him use his sewing machine. Next thing I know, he'll be making linen on a loom. <laughs> who knows? <laughs> hey, you know who else sponsors the show? Who? Your wife. She does. Yeah. Caninesuticals. Yep. The best dog suticals. <laughs> the best caninesuticals. Premium grade. Yep. Human quality. Yeah. It's going gangbusters at the moment. Thank you to the community who have been supporting yeah, it. Yeah, it's great shit. There's been hot demand for her to get this all over the world. Like mm-hmm. people are asking her from every country. She's looking into it at the moment. Okay. So that's going to happen. All right. I caught up with George Kittridge and saw the actual Rowdy Hound box. I know. Yeah. So I had a good talk with George actually about his process in getting this thing to market. Yep. It's a motherfucker. So you should, if you want one, you should get one because- George has put a lot of work into turning this dream into a reality. He and did so much R and D, didn't he? Oh, huge! And yeah. the the product is amazing. Yep, so and he's got one. training videos, everything showing he trains and supports people how to get the dog into it. Yep. how to make it safe. Yep. how to make the dog have a good experience from so it. So, if you ride a motorbike and you have a dog, you need the Rowdy Hound dog box on the back of that motorbike. Absolutely. Next, Fabian Romo. Yes, he's got a shop, Mojo. And you've seen it. I've been in there. You've I stole the tug. Yeah. I stole the tug. Yeah. I mean, I'd said as I was leaving, I'm taking this. Yep. So I guess it doesn't count. But yeah, Mojo Dog. Did you pay for it? I mean. With your time. Yeah. So it's not really a theft. Yeah. Okay. Everything's fine. If you need dog gear in North America, that's where to get it. Mojo. Yeah. yeah. They've got everything. What he has, to be honest, is the best dog trainers shop. Yep. It's without a doubt the best shop that I've walked into where you can buy actual dog trainer gear. Yep. Yeah, high quality e-collars, mills, leashes, you know, all the things. Like proper tugs, like all the actual things that real dog trainers use. Mm. Mojo, get it there. We have a new sponsor also. We do. Yeah. Daniel Trapino. Trapino, yeah, that sounds about right. Daniel Trapino. It's Dog Club, South Australia. Yeah. What does he do there? It's kind of like a little hangout hood that he's created there. A little cultural hub. A little cultural hub in South Australia. So I think that's what Daniel was trying to go for, was to try and embrace and build the culture in South Australia. Because I will be honest, it's been sadly lacking for many, many years. Mm. Like not much really canine came out of South Australia. So I think it doesn't mean there aren't good dog trainers down there. There's some very good dog trainers and personalities down in South Australia, but they've never really 
elevated it. And I think that's what Daniel wants to do. He really wants to push it out into the public forefront. Get in there, South Australians. Get into the Dog, dog Club, Club. SA. We must never forget Dan Croft. Dan Croft in Canada. What a good yeah. bloke he is. I love speaking to Dan as well. Yeah. Great facility. Great facility. Really emphasizing his puppy training programs. Mm-hmm. I just put an ad up today on Instagram showing a little Dobeman doing his little course running around. But that's what he really wants to emphasize on the critical period of development in young dogs and puppies. But it's not only that. I mean, it's all working breeds. As I've said before, as you've said before, very impressive to watch all of these dogs on BOSU balls, balancing and all of the breeds that other people usually are shying away from. He's got like a whole room full of them there. Great shop, great setup, great social media. I really like the Dan Croft setup. Our last person. Who? Barbara DeGroote. Oh, lovely Barbara. Yeah, the sugar mama. From the heart dog training. Yeah. She didn't really want to emphasize. She just said, here, have some cash. Yeah. So we just want to say thank you, Barbara. We do want to say thank you, Barbara. Thank you for supporting us. You're wonderful. We do love you. On with the show. Indeed. Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm joined in studio today by my co-host, Glenn Cook. Have you had a medical emergency you had yeah, to attend to? Yeah, we missed a week. My apologies. At the last minute, I had to pop overseas, but it's mm. all fine. It's all sorted. No problems. Yeah. We can carry on. Okay. Well, let's do that. <laughs> <laughs> you had a topic, sir. I do have a topic. I have an interesting one. I was listening to a private lesson that my staff were doing. Mm-hmm. Occasionally, they just say, can you come in and listen and give pointers or whatever. Mm -hmm. So that's my job. Mm -hmm. And I was listening to a client talking to one of the staff. They were asking a series of questions to the staff member conducting the lesson. Like They were saying, when I do this, my dog immediately assumes that this is what I want. And they were asking the question. The person who was doing the lesson was answering it quite well, but I did chime in at one stage because I felt that I could explain it more simplified than Mm -hmm. what it needed to be. In a nutshell, the reason that I believe the dog was doing all the things, it was obvious to me, is that the dog is being cued subconsciously, Mm -hmm. inadvertently I should say, the dog is being cued to do those behaviours. But a lot of people don't know that. They don't know what cueing is and they don't know what connective behaviours are to certain cues that they actually do. Mm -hmm. So I said to her, all right, your dog's here with us now. Why don't you do this behavior and see if we can replicate it? And I want to see if your dog goes and does something similar or actions to the effect of Mm -hmm. what you've just said it would do. Person did it, dog did the behavior. Mm -hmm. And I said, that's because the dog believes that's what you want because you've done this and repeated this over a series of time. So the dog is actually cued. And I said, we create cues that we have no intention to create. We just seem to create them. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of ones when you go to a trainer, a trainer will say, well, these are the cues I want you to use and these are the connective behaviours that I want to those cues. So by association, I want to be able to say sit and have the dog perform a sit. I want to say drop and have the dog drop. And I said, if you're German for argument's sake, it wouldn't matter. You would say sits and plots, Mm -hmm. you know, for sit and drop. So I said, it doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter what the word is as long as the dog has an association. But what you're associating it with is a random behavior that you've done an action. And I said, it doesn't need to be verbal. It can be physical. You can, In fact, it's probably much harder to attach a verbal than it's a physical. I view. absolutely agree. Literally millions upon millions upon millions of dog owners are doing this every day, mm. but they don't realize it. And then they blame the dog for the behavior. 
And I said, well, that's actually interesting. And I said, that has inspired me to do an episode of a podcast because so many people are inadvertently cueing the dog and don't realize I have trained this, but I didn't know I trained this. Yeah. Yeah, I agree totally. So when I teach seminars, I hold this whole section mm. on the importance of cues to your dog. Yep. And I think that there's a hierarchy of those things. The first being something tactile. Mm. So I think that that's survival. I think that that is like directly linked to survival is being in tune with what's happening with your body. Yep. All right. Knowing when you're in pain, knowing when there's pressure put upon you, knowing when you should lean into pressure, when you should yield to pressure, that's what keeps you alive. Mm. Right. So I think that in this hierarchy of important cues to a dog, anything it can feel is the most important thing. Mm. And I think that that's why very often with our tools of compulsion, everything from flat collar to e-collar, I think that that becomes probably the primary means of communication to a dog when there is conflicting information. If the dog gets you know information via a, one of those tools, something that it can feel, as well as any other signal from you, whether it's visual or verbal, it's going to take the advice of that tactile cue. It's, mm. it's going to run the program that that tactile cue starts. And that's one of the things I think we see a lot, especially say in pet dog owners. Hang who, on, hold up. That's a good phrase, run the program. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Mm. Well, that's how I think of it, right? Yeah. Is that like it's the cue that starts like the dog goes, all right. like It's the information you've entered, so therefore the program executes on that. Exactly. I like it. I like it. And so – what I see pretty often, mm. especially from, say, pet dog owners who want the e-collar for, like, off-leash reliability, right? Now, if you've got a pretty chilled-out dog and you don't have a lot of obedience and you don't do a lot of work otherwise, you just want a dog that you can, you know, take out in the woods, let it run around, be off-leash, have freedom, and be certain it's going to come back when you call – a lot of people end up going for an e-collar doing that. Now, less in Australia because we don't have, like you can't take your dog so easily into national parks in Australia, mm. And but much more in the US we see this type of thing is very common, right, where people will have, they want to go on a hike or whatever with their dog and they want that off-leash freedom but the absolute recall because a dog might encounter, in our instance here, it might encounter a kangaroo, in theirs it might encounter a deer or- A you bear, know, a cougar. Anything, yeah. right? And anything that could be- be prey to the dog, right? Mm. Or could the dog could be prey to it, right? Yes. Like it doesn't really matter. Either one of those things, it's your responsibility to make sure that you can call the dog back. Mm. And so what we see from a lot of people is they'll go to a trainer or they'll figure it out online, you know, probably I'd love to talk to Larry about what the stats are on people who have bought his book, you know, like I'd love to know the numbers on that, how many people have been educated by that. But they're going to use a system where they're going to, you know, they're going to layer an e-collar over the top of their already taught behavior. They're going to stim, the dog's going to come back, right? Yep. So- to a lot of those people, they say, well, the e-collar to me, it's my backup. I can call my dog. If the dog doesn't come back, then I, I can give him a correction and he knows to come back because he's been taught how to, to turn off that pressure by doing that. But if that's the only place you use the e-collar, and for many people it is, to lots of those people I've said, like, don't even call him. Just stim him on the e-collar so it happens. Mm. And the dog comes trotting back, yep. right? Like happily comes trotting back with some expectation of reinforcement He's turned off the aversive pressure that he's felt from feeling the e-collar at distance and knows that the path to turning that off is coming back. Yep. And you see it happen and, it, you know, there's literally millions of people who are doing that every day. It's a single event you've created with the e-collar. But to those same people, if their dog, say, knows a sit or a down or whatever, if they call out at distance and, say, sit, 
and the dog doesn't. And they stim it, it'll run back. It, it'll come back. Yeah. It, that stim is not going to act as a correction in the way that they think that it is because yeah. what it really is is tactile information mm. to the dog that says run the program of coming back. Yep. So like that I think is the most important cue and I think that – there's people who do cues on purpose, mm. right? Like like that with the e-collar where we want the dog to have that understanding of this is what I want you to do after it. But I think for sure there are many who even with the e-collar don't realize that that is a single cue to the dog. You know, very often we see people who are doing a lot of obedience type work that all happens around them. They're doing healing. They're doing a middle position. They're doing all the different types of the healing and they're doing all these sorts of cool things but all of those behaviors, typically when most people are doing obedience, they use the handler as a reference point. So the handler is an important part of the completion of the obedience. And so when they uh, want to give a correction at distance for a behavior, the dog then goes, well, like, I can't perform this at distance. Like this is done mm. in near to you. And especially via the e-collar, mm. the dog very often will close distance with the handler as a priority before it does any of the other things. It'll go, well, I, like the most important thing to me right now is turning off the pressure of that e-collar because I can feel it. It's important to me, but also there's an aversive nature to it. So certainly your voice can be aversive, but it certainly can't be as aversive as an e-collar mm. without making a pairing of the two. Right. Yes, exactly. So until it's Pavlovian. Yeah. Yeah. If you're telling the dog to sit and you're stimming, but the dog doesn't understand that the stim is a correction for having not followed a behavior, but rather thinks of it as a specific command to follow a specific behavior of recalling, mm. there's zero chance of your dog sitting. He's going to come back. Yep. Right. And I think that that is very testable. That's very obvious. You can like, I, you can demonstrate that to people very, very easily. But then I think the next layer after that is like your body language. And I think that what we do is way more important to a dog than what we say. And there's evidence for that. I think that you can read the book, The Genius of Dogs, and we believe that dogs are dogs, not wolves, because the wolves that were on the periphery of human settlements that could tell when they were welcome versus when they were not turned into dogs. And I think the evidence for that is pretty, there's a few, right? Anecdotally, you could say that wolves have been hunted to nearly extinction mm. right, all over the planet and dogs are fat and live on our couches. Yeah. Right? <laughs> they made a pretty good deal. They Being able to tell when they were going to be hunted versus when they would get allowed to clean up the straps. Evolutionarily, that was a, a fantastic fitness test, right? I love of the meme where it's a picture of a wolf talking to another wolf yeah, and yeah. it says, I'm just going to go close to those humans. What's the worst that could happen? Yeah. And then like it says, you know, 10,000 years later. Yeah. And then it's got a picture of a pug in a pram with a bee <laughs> costume on it saying, what the fuck? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, that's exactly it. Yeah. And so they've recreated that. The belly of Fox experiment. I think there's some 80 something generations in now. That's fascinating. We've talked about it on the show before. If you knew, that's definitely worth looking up. That's mm, worth a Google. Absolutely. Billy, I can't remember his first name. It might have been. He's Russian, so let's say it's Ivan because, you know, <laughs> not to stereotype or anything. But So at a time when genetic experiments were illegal, under the cover of trying to create better fox fur, began doing experiments on these foxes at a fox fur 
breeding farm or yep. I don't know what you'd call that. What's the t- correct term for that? But anyway, that's... That's what it'd be. It'd be a breeding facility. Yeah, so yeah. that's ongoing, right? Mm. And they're 80-something generations in and their selective criteria, they've got a control group that are just randomly bred foxes. They breed foxes that are predisposed to taking advice from humans. And the test that they do is that you get a puppy and they do this with dogs as well. You get a puppy and you hold it in place and... They can do this from six weeks old and they don't need to have had any experience with people before, provided they've got the nerves to be able to be around people, right? Mm. And you bait one cup and you pretend to bait another. And the gesture, uh, obviously we're we're an audio show, so you guys can't see what I'm doing, but the faintest gesture towards the cup that really does have the food in it is discernible by the puppy and it will take your advice and it will go to that. Now, a human baby can't do that. A chimpanzee can't do that. Of course, they'll learn it. But their point is that a dog comes hardwired to understand that. Mm. And by what they did with these foxes is by creating that as the only selective criteria, then they mate the two foxes. This one, yep, this one understood the experiment. This one didn't. He goes out of the group and this one, he's, the other one that did get it is bred to another one that did get it. 80 generations later, they don't look anything like foxes and they haven't selected for that. They haven't tried to like, this one's pretty, put it to that one. I like the spots of this one. I like the floppy ears of it, but they look like hounds now. Mm. They don't look anything like foxes and that's happened to themselves. That's happened with the only selected criteria being that they can read human body language. They become more appealing to human desirability. Totally. Not for the fur. Because the fur changed and it wasn't what the actual... Yeah, it's junk now. Yeah, well, it wasn't what they wanted. Yeah. But the actual image of the dog softened, the eyes round, yeah. the ears went floppy. And as you said, they look more like hounds than they did with little foxes. They were mm-hmm. wagging their tails. They were doing all sorts of things to appeal to being selected for that criteria. Yeah. Interesting you talking about this. I didn't get all the way through it and I started uh, listening to Andrew Huberman Mm -hmm. and he was interviewing a doctor in neurobiology from Tel Aviv. As I said, I've only just started listening to the conversation. I was about 15 minutes into it and the phone kept ringing and I just didn't get time to finish it on my journey. But I'm going to go back to it because the principle of the discussion is how this doctor is doing extensive research into finding out that all of this information is genetically being passed on. Mm. They were stipulating that humans, dogs and other mammals, that this information that's happened to generations of our families is hardwired and it is being passed along. Mm. You know, we understand through epigenetic coding and so forth that the very genes that you and Jane have, anything that you've endured in between even the time that you've had Rip and Axel, things have changed in your DNA. Mm. You've done things, you've experienced things, you've eaten things things have changed. So it might be a small mutation, but it's a mutation nonetheless. Yeah, yeah. So even between your two sons, there is different coding in the DNA that you you guys have passed on to your two children. Yeah. I can't talk about this with authority. I'm not authority on genetic coding or epigenetics, but it was a very interesting conversation. I'm really looking forward to hearing it play out because, as I said, the principal point of it is there is information that's been passed on us about behaviour. Mm. So certain types of behaviour that we're destined to repeat will come from our family members. Oh, totally. Mm. And, that you, you know, we observe that. Yeah. We know then that the first and most important thing to a dog is what it can feel. Yep. Second is what it sees and what it reads in our body language. And, and dogs, it seems come hardwired to understand human body language. Mm. A dog can tell when it's welcome versus when it's not. And that's why it's a dog and not a wolf, right? Yep. And I think that's one of the things that the tactile thing is very 
demonstrable. Like we can see that, I can show it, I can prove it to you. But I think one of the things about those body language cues is that some people sort of, they believe it, but it's hard for them to stop doing it. And so it can be hard to demonstrate that, hey, your dog doesn't actually know the command because you do a thing with your body. And even trying to convince people Mm. not to do the thing with their body can be really hard. I tell a story, like I observed that of myself back when I was training a lot with Valerie, I was filming a lot of training and, you know, really running the red pen over my own work, right? That's what I would like to do. I noticed that when I was clicking, it was when I was developing, starting using a clicker seriously, right? What I noticed was that I had this kind of like bit of a Latin dance. A bit of a swag (laughs) movement. In the way that I clicked. And I thought, fuck, I wonder how much that is affecting. Now, of course she knew the clicker because I could click from within a blind. I could click from within a hide. I knew that she understood the sound of the clicker for sure. But I'm wondering, you know, how much does this movement that I have make, right? So I took the, you know, the the type of clicker that I like, the teardrop clickers, Mm. uh, it's just a piece of tin in there that that snaps. And so you can just pop them open, take the tin out. It it looks identical. It just doesn't function anymore. Yep. So I did that to one of them and put her in a down, maybe a hundred meters away and clicked Mm. and no, no click. Right. But she jumped up and came running towards me. And this is a dog with a, at the time, a very reliable down, you know, I could do backflips, I could do all kinds of things, but there was a very specific flick of my wrist sort of hand motion that indicated I'd done the click, not audible. She was out of range of audible and there was nothing to make the sound. And she performed the exact action that she would have had it worked correctly. So like that was the evidence to me. I'm like, oh, okay. Like that has become a part of the thing to her. And it's probably impossible to avoid that, right? Like, because I have to move, my fingers have to move. Like I can minimize the swagger with which I do it, but there is going to be some element of movement. If you listen to people that do nose works, like, Part of the trial, as they're going along, their dogs will be moving around vehicles, boxes, interiors, whatever they're doing. As soon as they get to the odor, as soon as the dog has shown them some sort of behavior that it's a round odor or it's indicated or it's found the odor, the person will immediately raise their hand and say alert. Mm. Now, to so many dogs now, that's become a conditioned response. Mm -hmm. They hear that cue and Mm. they run to them for food straight Mm -hmm. away or they do whatever they- Yeah, it it acts as their terminal marker. It acts as their terminal marker. There was a student in the recent group of NDTF block ones. She's doing nose work and she was saying exact same thing. And I said, listen, the only way you're going to fix this now, if you can, is absolutely flooded out of the dog and just walk around the house raising your hand saying alert to mm. every single thing that you're doing. When you take your dogs out for a walk, say alert, but don't ever reinforce it in any way. Yeah. It's got to go extinct. Yeah. Like you literally have to destroy the meaning of that word mm. that it just doesn't mean anything else anymore because now it does and it has power and strength and yeah. the dog will, you know, leap to it. And she said, oh, it does. Like the dog is so animated when yeah, I yeah. say it. And I said, but that's because you reserve it just yeah. before you reward the dog. A very similar phenomenon happens with – Trainers, and this is what I was saying to this client the other day, because they were very perturbed about this. They don't like taking responsibility for these things because they feel guilty that has happened. Mm. And I could see that because I could see the edginess starting to come out in the conversation. I said, don't feel guilty about it. We do it as trainers as well. And they said, can you give me an example? I said, sure. And I said, most trainers, when they're learning and during the learning phase, will start reaching for their treat pouch before they mark. I said, most dogs are hardwired or cued into seeing that themselves you know, because they, they're watching and checking in on you. And that's a problem in itself because then you create a dog that's constantly watching and checking you with you instead of doing the work that you're asking the dog to do. And I said, so that's another level on top of a problem that you've already created 
is you've got a dog that instead of, you know, doing detection or doing the obedience it's supposed to do, it's looking over its shoulder, watching you because you've cued the dog that previously that leads to reinforcement. Yeah. If it looks enough, it's going to happen. So then it becomes a superstitious behaviour. Mm-hmm. And I said, but the problem is, is most people when they see the dog about to approach the behaviour or the dog is doing a behaviour, instead of just clicking or using a verbal marker, they will then reach for the treat pouch, then do it. So that becomes the pre-signal and it becomes impregnated in part of the sequence and becomes Pavlovingly conditioned. So mm-hmm. therefore, whenever you touch your bag, and I said you should be doing this eventually in the final stage, improving phase, you should be touching your bag, opening it, closing it, moving around, but it should mean nothing to the dog. Yeah. It should have no meaning to it whatsoever. It should never indicate that a reward is coming just because I touched the bag. It's like the reason why police officers get in in trouble for touching the gun unless they intend to use it. And as I said, because you feel psychologically assaulted if you see a police officer come and talk to you and rest their hand on your gun. Yeah, it's a precursor. Yeah, it's a precursor. And I said, but in the early days, that's what officers used to do. You know, like as I were talking to you, it was just somewhere to lean your hand on, like you put your hand on the butt of your gun. Mm. And I said, but now people see it as assault or they replicate that as assault. Mm. You know, they see it and they think, oh, that officer is going to pull their gun and shoot me. Mm. That's how they feel about it. So, they, you know, that is a pre-cue for something that in their mind they're playing out the events of. I said, that's a negative, that's an aversive. And I said, but the same intensity happens for the appetitive side of it, the rewarding side of it. And the problem is... You know, then I started to think more about Pat Nolan's story about the bird. Often those behaviours are the strongest motherfuckers that you could ever get. You know, like the dogs do them with so much intensity, like they get so animated. Even dogs that don't really display a lot of drive, during those times – people bring on drive like they've never seen out of their dogs before. And this is what the client was saying to me. Like I'll do certain things in the house and my dog gets up and runs around and does all these things, you know, and it really annoys me. And I said, yeah, unfortunately the the dog has been cued to it and believes that's what you want. It's super reinforcing to the dog. Like it's the best possible thing that could happen. And and again, that's where I, I said before, where I was leading to before, they go, oh, no, I didn't. I didn't do that. And I said, not intentionally. Yeah. It's not intentional. It's a psychological effect. It's a pairing that you do unintentionally. Yeah. So reading that body language, super important and very capable. Like a dog is much more capable of reading human body language than probably another person is. And what's interesting about that is it doesn't seem like dogs come with any understanding of other dog body language, right? They they have to learn that. They have Mm. to understand, okay, mum growls at me. That growl means nothing until mum bites me for, you know, for being too rough with her nipples or whatever. Yeah. And, we, you know, because we see this really often with dogs, singleton puppies or worse still, uh, singleton puppies with no mother that are bottle raised or whatever, they really become socially inept with other dogs. Like you really have to put in a lot of work and you have to find a dog. And like, I'm, I'm acutely aware of this because I've done tons of it with Valerie. Mm. She kind of hates puppies now, but when she was younger- there was a lot, like that was a big, that, I made a lot of money. That was part of my bread and butter yep. was having Valerie basically Wet be a surrogate mother, yep. right? Mm. And teaching puppies, teaching very young dogs, like what's what, how, yep. how the world functions, because it doesn't seem that they know how to do that, but mm. they do know how to read human body language, but they don't know how to read dog body language. And well, it I think her, that's part of that hard wiring, right? Is yeah. that the well, evolutionary stage of Yeah, them. that doesn't yeah. serve them. And mm. for the most part, like- Street dogs probably have a strong need to be able to read other dogs' body language, right? Like their selection is based upon that, whether they're 
fitness, their survival is based upon their senses as a dog, but then also their ability to reproduce, you know, to survive even long enough to reproduce means that it's important they don't get killed by another dog, right? Or they traffic, road traffic. Yeah. They understand the, the laws of traffic, traffic they have to lights, figure that sort, that sort all of that stuff sort of out. stuff, yep. But they have to then be able to read, like, you know, they have to fit into the dog pack or, like, the, the crew that they're with. They have to understand that and get along well enough to survive in order to pass on their genes, right? Whereas – for most pet dogs, not to bring it up, but like Frenchies can't even fucking reproduce. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, like I, intimately, yes. Yeah. So like natural selection went out the window a fucking long time ago, yeah. right? Like with purpose-bred dogs, natural selection died centuries ago. Mm. We're now into like, or probably millennia ago, right? Where we're saying, you know, this one has the attributes that I want made it to this other one that he's never met. And in modern day, he's on the other side of the planet and will never meet and has been dead for 20 years. You know what I mean? Mm. Like it, all the normal laws of natural selection are way out the window in dogs now because we're fucking with that. We're playing We're playing natural selection. We're we playing selector. Mm. The final piece of important pieces of information to a dog is the things that you say. You know, the language aspect of it, this is one of the things that we see is that you have to be really intentional to even have dogs understand what the fuck you're saying. And very often when people tell us that their dogs don't do what they're told, they're belligerent, whatever, they're like, well, the dog has never actually been taught any of these language cues because your body language cue happens at the same time or your tactile cue happens at the same time. And those are the things that are important to the dog. And the dog never even heard your word or heard it, but never made a pairing, never made any sort of they're association to everything. Yeah. They change. We change phrases. Yeah. And like the dog world knows this. We know this very, very well because when you're in the higher levels of, I don't care what sport you do, whether it's a bite sport or agility or or herding or anything in between, the dogs perform nude, right? So like no equipment on the dog so that there can be no tactile feedback. And in almost every sport that I'm aware of, like especially like in the bite sports for sure, there is an element in the higher levels where the handler is out of sight of the dog and has to give commands, right? And in order that we demonstrate like you need to be able to actually act on the verbal cue rather than have the dog read your body language. We create a test to test for that. And that exists in every sport. You know, like I say, whether you're doing PSA, it will happen at some point in your higher level without a doubt. The dog will be out of sight of you. Whether you're doing GRC, it happens in your SR test. You have to leave the side of the dog. Now, you don't have to give commands at that point, but it demonstrates that the dog understands the continuation of the behavior in your absence and that your presence isn't a part of the continuation of the behavior, right? Like, so that that tells us that the dog understands the behavior in and of itself rather than you being a necessary piece of the behavior, especially in the down, right? Mm. And we see that, like you, you see that, say, in with an IGP dog when they're doing their long down while the other person and does their routine it, for a lot of those dogs if the handler started doing star jumps that would create an, an attraction or some form of arousal to the dog it would probably result in the dog breaking it down because the dog would be like hey that doesn't fit the picture what happens during the long down for me is you you stand with your back away from me and i stare at your back and most good handlers are giving cues to the dog via that they're giving it like that is a keep on going signal that they're giving to their dog continually throughout the down mm-hmm. so you know, but by the time I think it's in the level three of IGP that they go into a blind, right? When yep. it's so like by the time you're at the higher levels, there's a piece where you have to be like, no, your absence has to be the cue to, for continuation, keep mm. on going. So 
noting those three things, like training has to look like that. Now, for us in the as trainers in the intentional drug training space, we're fully aware of this. Like, like most people listening to this are like, oh, no shit, Pat. You just wasted 20 minutes of my time like it, explaining that, which is very obvious. But for our clients, that is not obvious at all. They're the extreme vast majority of dog owners. Yeah. The extreme. But there's another layer to this, and this is what I want to circle back around to your student talking about the NoseWorks trial is like I'm very interested to see how that goes because in my opinion, that's going to be 50-50, whether they're able to make it extinct. And the variable that means whether it's going to work or not is going to be outside of their control. Well, the problem there, and you're right, the problem there is it's another acting cue on that is the people at the event doing the same thing because all that brings on the former memory of, oh, yeah, I do this and that's what happens. Yeah. But there's another layer to all of this that we don't really talk about because we can't perceive it. Mm. And that is exactly that of what we can't perceive. And we've touched on this in the, in the past, but like the, uh, I'm, I'm sort of deep down the rabbit hole with the guy, Donald Hoffman, right? That's worth a Google. Everybody it's worth a Google, but it's about the nature of reality and your perceptions of reality Mm. and how consciousness and how it exists. And that, we aren't actually programmed, like seeing the world for what it really is, is not actually helpful, right? Like seeing the world in a way that is best suited for natural selection is the way that we're, we work, right? Mm-hmm. So you see things that are designed to, uh, you know, the way that we perceive the world is for us to continue to live happily and pass on our genes, right? It's kind of like the discussion that, Smith has with Morpheus about how they created this ideal world and everybody was fucking unhappy and it just didn't work out for them until they created the world that we need to live in. Yeah. So the way that we as humans perceive the world is likely nothing like the way that a dog perceives the world. Mm. So for us, we just, you know, I just rattled off this I got this list of three things that are important. What a dog can feel, what a dog can see, and what a dog can hear. Because those are things that I can share common ground with a dog, right? Like I can, I can feel things. I know that they're important to me. I know that there's certain cues that are important to me. When my back hurts in a particular way, I don't sit in a particular way. That tactile feedback drives behavior. I can read your body language. I can tell when people are pissed off. I can tell when people are happy. I, I'm a, mm. I want to be around people at certain times. I can see when things un- unfold. I can read people's body language reasonably well, and I can listen to what you're saying. And those three things I share with a dog, right? Mm. But I can't fucking smell the way a dog smells. No way. Right? I don't see in the colors that a dog sees in. Mm. And so these are the cues that sometimes when I think we see like the dog acts in a particularly peculiar way and there is some trigger and we're unable to discern what that trigger is. This is one of the things it was relevant when we're talking about behavioral euthanasia the other week Mm. is that like sometimes we can unfairly say, well, there's no cues. There's no triggers. I can't figure out what's going on with this dog because he launches into his dangerous behavior of whatever it is. And I can't figure it out. It's not something that I'm saying. It's not something that I'm doing. It's not something that I can perceive. It could be something that he's smelling. But there's a ton mm. that the dog can perceive that we can't. They see in a different light spectrum to us, right? And they can smell like completely differently at a different sensitivity to us. And they conceptualize through micro expressions, which is different than most of us. Exactly. Like unless you're a very intently scrutinizing type of person that really – 
makes a point of studying human behavior, there's so many, we call them subtleties. We just eliminate a lot of those subtleties. We look at that world that you were talking about before, that perfect world scenario that just goes around and I don't have to think too much and I can be blissfully ignorant and just get on with my life. You know, like if I stop and I stare and I look into the abyss, then I can start to see these things. I can start to see the crack. I can start to see the dust and the dirt and all the things that are really triggering me. People don't want to know about that. Mm. They learn to neutralize it, Mm. so to speak. But when you pay attention to it, when you start to look at it more, like when you look deeply into it the way a dog does with odor and with paying attention to those sort of things that the human is doing, you start to see the devil in the detail and and work out these cues are repeating, like they're, totally. they're happening and then a behavior happens afterwards. Yeah. So in the example of the person whose dog is hearing the alert as a condition final response, so at their condition final response and understanding it as a terminal marker, mm. in my opinion, what you prescribed will work if the handler maintains like the same physiological observableness to the dog during a trial as not. Well, I can give you an example of that because this is the example I gave to her about how we fixed a problem with Harley. Yeah. So remember that story that I've told many times about how Boyd and I had that argument about how Harley. Yeah. I said, off of you, yeah. I said he knew and, and Boyd said, don't yeah. be an idiot. That's all anthropomorphic. So long story short for everybody If you don't know it, go and listen to some of the other episodes. But a long story short, Boyd and I used to do what was called a first-timers demo. Harley used to play out the same demo week after week after week. So eventually he didn't wait for me to verbally cue everything. He just went off, you know, like he was cueing off Boyd rather than me. So he wasn't waiting for that extra layer. So as soon as Boyd said, when you're ready, Glenn, he would just go into the behavior and start doing, he went into autopilot Mm -hmm. because that was signal three that was already placed in front of signal two. Mm -hmm. But I didn't like it and neither did Boyd. We recognized that it became a problem and we wanted to eliminate that. The only way that we could eliminate that because we couldn't train it out of him at any other time until we completely mock trialed. And what I mean by that is we had to set the day up with people and it couldn't be trainers because he knew that that was artificial. They're fucking clever. When we want to conceptualize how a dog actually thinks, we assume that they're not that intelligent until we can see that they actually are. So when we brought in trainers and they were in uniform, he knew this wasn't real. Mm -hmm. So he would play the game and he wouldn't do what he was doing before. The minute we went back to real first timers, he started fucking up all over again. Mm -hmm. And I found that incredibly frustrating. But then I learned to admire it. I admired his intelligence, how he could work it out. Here's how we fixed it. We had to set it up and it was at great expense to do it as well, but we knew that it was a problem. We brought a bunch of rando people down there, friends, relatives, everything like that. We set it up at the same time of day and it was during a weekday. So Boyd had to come down out of the office. We'd bring all these randos down. We set it up. It was the only time that he did it and he broke and he went to do it and I got to punish him because I couldn't punish him during first timers. And that was the problem. It was absent of an aversive. Mm -hmm. It was absent of punishment. But when he did it during the mock, I punished him for it and then he realised straight away, I'm not allowed to do this. Mm. But we had to randomise it too. So we couldn't just do it once and then assume that it was fixed. We had to randomise it and then set these up on a more frequent process so we could actually layer in punishment for him. And he didn't know when it was coming. After a period of time, he stopped doing it. He realised. you know. So then he started to realise, well, now if I do it without you verbally cueing it to me, there's a risk I would be punished. So what he would do 
is Boyd would say, when you're ready, he would jolt like he would go to do it and then he would check back at me and I'd reward him for doing that. So then he'd realise I'm on the right tangent now. And it wasn't that he was doing the wrong thing. It just was he didn't realise he wasn't supposed to do that. He believed in his body, mind and soul that this is the behaviour I'm supposed to carry out because that's what the two of you fuckwits have asked me to do. So all he was looking to do was shortcut what he thought was the most efficient cycle in the programming, as you said before, run this program. Don't wait for the inefficiencies, create efficiency in it. And now- when I look back on it now, at the start, I was fucking furious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now I can't believe what a brilliant dog he was. Yeah. You need a dog to do that. If a dog didn't do it, that's a very difficult to train dog. Yeah. Because, like, that's a dog that's not looking to solve the puzzle. Good. That's a yeah, dog yeah, that's yeah. Always I agree. just going, mm. like, one, then two, then three. The whole point of training is that through classical conditioning, and I don't mean in the, like, in the reflex response, I mean more in the, like, this leads to that. The dog goes, oh, the inevitable end is over there. It's the efficiency of the chain. That's what we should be doing too. We're creating a chain in any sequence of events. Like if it's a work procedure or anything like that, what a company really needs to do is is look at efficiencies in the chains that you're creating in procedure. And the dogs need to do – dogs will do the same. Animals will do the same. Like if they know I can reduce risk, I can improve my standings, you know, like how I physically – my advantages, if I can improve those – this is how I need to shorten and improve and restructure this chain totally. to eliminate all of the links that don't make sense to it anymore. And we're relying on that. Like that's how escape and avoidance learning works. Yeah. And if you even if you're just teaching with nothing but positive reinforcement, that's how you fade the lure. Like all mm. these things that if the dog can't put those things together, mm. there's a problem. And some dogs have a harder time doing it than others, for sure. But there's a problem there if if the dog isn't starting to put those things together. It's that you get the dogs that are especially clued in that can make it more difficult to not create accidental change where the dog goes like, oh, yeah, I see what you want here when it's not what you want. Like it's the start same start point but a different end point. Mm. This is the biggest problem that the army faces with like back in my old unit, when I was there, even, you know, it's a very expensive machine, right? And very often politicians or, or random people will look at the, the, the dollar figure and go, what the fuck are we spending all this money on this for? Yeah. I want to have a look. And so the unit's constantly doing demos. Like at least once a month, you have to do this demo for someone. For right? the new politician that just yeah, got elected. Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or mm. whoever it is, they decide, I want to see this, right? Yeah. I want to yeah. see where this money's going to. And you have this whole demo that you do. And the demo just gets drilled, 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 drilled so that you could do it with your eyes shut. It's very impressive. You do all these cool things. They blow stuff up. When I was, I've got a video, I, I don't think I can post it, but like as a sniper platoon sergeant, when I was doing it, like I have a, a cup get shot out of my hand as mm. I'm like, I'm you're explaining what sniper capability is and people are looking at you like, can this guy not drink coffee for like the, the five minutes of his speech? Because you, you pause <laughs> a couple of times and drink coffee from it. Yep. And then as you put it down on the desk, like you, it just gets shot clean out of your hand. So like, it's this very impressive, very blah, blah. Mm. And that's all fine, except for the dog, mm. because it fucks up the dog. Because you have to run the rehearsal of the demo, right? Because, you know, like the morning before the demo, the day before and the morning before you'll run a dry rehearsal, right? And just make sure everything's in place. Everything's going to go properly. Yep. But that fucks up a dog badly. That fucks up a dog. Doing the same thing three times in a row. Yeah, because it becomes super conditioned. Yeah, and so Mm. eventually what we ended up doing a long time ago is we had a demo dog that was a dog that had issues and wasn't suitable otherwise – 
and you could just get him out of the kennel and go, hey, do the demo. Do the demo. Right. Yeah. And that was his job. Anyone could get him out. Mm. And he knew it. He was like, and it was, he was useless otherwise, because that's all he knew how to do. Given the set of circumstances being correct, he'd be like, Away I go. I know that I've got to run to here. I've got to down. I've got to pretend like I'm searching for this area. And then I've got to run over to that door. My handler will meet me there. Then I'm going to go in. There's a guy in the third room. I'm going to bite him. He's going to drive me out to the front section here so that everyone can see the bite. Then I'm going to out. Then I'm going to be called back to my handler. Then I'm going to continue on and be out of this view of the demo, right? Like, And the dog just knew that. And he's like, no worries. So long as that all results in me getting the ball at the end of it, happy days, yep. right? Like I'm totally fine. Now it's perfect. We relied on that being the case, but for real dog training, it's terrible. It's ineffective autonomy. Yeah. So mm. when he, when he died and you, now you're back to like, okay, fuck, we got to like, we replace well, we got to take it in turns. It has to be a different dog every time. And we got to like, be very careful. We can only practice a little bit. We can't in our rehearsal, our rehearsal can't actually be what we want because the dog will skip steps, you know, like it's got to be it's got to be done in a way that doesn't allow for the dog to figure out the picture and just run the program. And that's what we see like with, from people who pattern train and that kind of stuff. Like you can see the dog start to anticipate and all that's fine because you can just correct the dog. I think that's one of the things that when the dog, that's one of the things I learned from, but he actually sort of like has a big, I mean, I didn't, it's not like I didn't know it without him, but he has a very strong teaching point about it, how anticipation is a good thing. Like mm. you, with the first time that your dog anticipates the next behavior, you should be happy. Yep. That's a demonstration showing that the dog knows what's it's intelligence. Yeah. yeah. And so in that moment, you shouldn't even correct the dog. When the dog anticipates like that, you should not like- you don't let reward it, it, but you don't punish it. You yeah, just, you don't you, punish because- You just allow it to happen yeah. without the- You got to acknowledge like, okay, you've got it, yep. but you, you're seeing the cue as being something else and that's my fault. I have to create a barrier between yep. one cue and the other. I have to create a space so that you're aware that anything could happen from here, not that one It has to be thing. shielded by control from there on in. But that's how yeah. a lot of people fuck up new behaviors is when the dog anticipates it, they punish it. And yep. then the dog's like, oh, got it. Like- don't do that thing. Got it. And or now do it have, with less intensity. Yeah. yeah. It, like some concern over what could happen. Yeah. But so sort of circling back around, I think that's what we don't necessarily take into account because we just can't is the perceptions of the dog. And especially when the dog is doing things that sort of don't seem natural to us or don't seem intuitive to us when the dog is doing some things that are, make no sense and with reliability doing it chances are there's some sort of cue. And this works for us and this works against us. One of the things that a lot of people will say is their dog is trial-wise, right? And they'll do all sorts of things, exactly as you just explained, you know, create the fake trial picture and all of that, right? And none of that works. Most of the people then say, you know, oh, it's because the tools came off. And, you know, like I've seen people who their dog wears a, a prong collar, right? But they haven't had cause to use that in months, mm. right? Like everything works. The dog works that like they've, they've taught, they've used that to taught the behaviors. They've brought, they've dialed in the focus. The dog is happily doing the work. They've got the prong collar on always as a backup in case something goes wrong, but it's been months since they've used it. They've practiced using the ball, like leaving the ball in a non-deck area, all that kind of stuff. So they're ready to trial. Mm. And when their prong collar comes off and they go onto the field and the dog just shits itself, like goes to total, like doesn't do anything that they say, they always then will blame why I didn't have the prong collar on, right? Like, that's what I needed. He won't do it without the tools. And it's like, that's not it at all, man. I mean, it could be. For sure it could be. But for the most part, it's you. Mm. You you didn't give the same commands. Now, you, I saw you say heal. You said it, but you didn't smell it. You didn't smell heal. <laughs> you, you didn't walk it. You didn't look heal, mm. right? 
and those are a big part of it to the dog. So yeah. if if in your training you're calm, you're relaxed, your body posture is a particular way, then that becomes a part of the behavior. That mm. becomes part of the command because the dog looks and he says, we know that the way you look is very important. I rely on that. That's why when I whistle my dog, he's looking you – know, the whistle to my dog means look at me and I'll tell you what to do next, right? And now – that might be if I'm holding out the ball, he's going to come and get the ball. But if I'm just standing dead still, he's going to come into the heel position. If I'm standing with my legs apart, he's going to come into the middle position, right? Because those are cues that I'm giving him. He reads my body and says, this is what's expected of you. So the same is true when you first ask for your heel command. The dog looks at you and goes, what are you doing, right? And you have to proof against, I'm doing all kinds of weird shit, but yep. you have to figure it out, right? Mm. Like Because if you're always in the same body posture and position – you must to begin with, but then you have to start showing the dog like, hey, but I could look like this. I might look like this. And that's why in the certain sports, you know, we have the decoy will hand you something or they'll tell you to go and pick something up or you'll walk over broken ground or step over a tunnel and something like that. So mm. the dog's like, hey, this isn't healing. But you have to have through training demonstrated the dog, no, 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 no. Healing is the criteria of healing is the command and when I want you to enter that position, it could be nothing but the command. Now I might be able to stand still and that certainly is part of it, but I might be laying down. I might be in a car. I might be sitting like all those things. You have to give your best approximation of what healing is to that. But what we don't control is the way that we smell. Right. Mm. And I think that that's a big part of it, especially with trial nerves. Like that's one of the biggest things because yeah, you yeah. see people are freaking out. Yeah. Right. And that's aversive to a dog in and of itself. And they're just vacillating cortisol and, yeah. and sweating all over totally. the place. And, and there's nothing you can do about that. Like you, that's the nerves you're going to go through, but your dog is going to remember that shit. And so yeah. if the first time you work your dog is at a, like, you know, the first time that the tools come off and there's no reinforcer and you're sweating bullets, right? Like mm. you are freaking out concerned. If the training falls apart that day, it's going to fall apart the next time you look like that as well, whether the tools are on or not, right? Like, because that becomes a picture to the dog of like, oh, things are about to go bad. I'm not going to get the ball. I'm not going to, there's going to be no guidance into the behaviors. There's going to be no help with helping to understand these things. This is, and it's not that the dog goes, oh, this is a trial. There's a bunch of people around, you know, the equipment's come off. The dog's like, you have changed. You are mm. fundamentally different to how you were 10 minutes ago or how you have been through the 10,000 times that we've rehearsed this and it's all gone perfectly well. Yeah. And then, you know, it becomes so somewhat self-fulfilling prophecy because like it, one terrible trial tends to result in another terrible trial, right? Because people then have that same level of nerves and concern. They're sweating bullets again. The dog smells it and goes, holy shit, right? So you have to find ways to work through that. So that's what I'm curious about with the person with nose works is if they themselves are totally different version during the trial, then what will happen at the first iteration is the dog will alert, the people will say alert, then it'll be correct, hopefully, that they'll reinforce and the dog goes, right, got it, understood. Under these conditions, when you smell like it's a trial, right, then that means that is my terminal marker. Mm. And that's going to be outside the person's control. Just while we're talking about this, I just know that Becky Thomas and Donna Worm are going to be having kittens because we keep calling it nose work and it's nose time Australia. Uh, okay, whatever. It's very, very – Sorry. Sorry, ladies. I apologise. And we're going to have Becky on at some stage. We're cool. Going to, we're going to talk to her about 
because she's running the whole Nose Time Australia okay. fundamentals. That itself, that point that we have been discussing, I think that should be, if it's not already, be addressed in the primary training of how to do alerts, mm-hmm. that it never becomes something that conditions the dog into behaviour. Mm-hmm. It just becomes a neutralised word that they know that they've got to do it. Trial nerves and trial preparations is a very hard thing to do with people, especially people that have. Well, it's not dog training. It's so not, this is that's the thing. Right. So the majority of the people who can get you fucking good for a trial, right? Yep. Like the people who can prepare you and your dog perfectly to perform the the actions of what will happen at the trial, that is seldom an overlapping skill set of mentally preparing you for the nerves and whatnot that will face that. That's a different- I've got an idea and it might be a silly idea, but it's still an idea nonetheless. Why don't some clubs that do some of these events have an actual scored event where they get the person to walk the field without the dog? They actually score them on taking control and doing what they're going to do. So it's a prelude into coming on the field with your dog. So you actually get told to do a series of events and you're scored and it becomes part of the entry into doing it. Then then you get paired with the dog then you get told, okay, now you got to do it with the dog. My advice to the people I coach is to do that. Visualization is a massive I know, but when it's not real, it doesn't feel real. And it's like very many of the discussions that you and I have had in personal conversations and times that we've been doing podcast episodes, we've talked about gunfighting and working with guns. And to a far lesser degree, I've done a lot of gun training. For me, I've done a lot of gun training as a civilian and you've done a shitload as a a former action guy. As a former action guy, as a former real genuine gunfighter. So I've never been in a gunfight, never. But I prepared for it and I trained with a guy called Dudley Plunkett who he made me sweat bullets when he trained me because he said, Glenn, the day that you could potentially ever pull your pistol in a gunfight, in a real situation where it becomes real, he said, it's not going to be where you're standing on a comfortable range where you had a nice breakfast, a coffee, you know, and we're all talking shit and he goes, and you know, you comfortably load your magazine and then put it in and pull the slide back and you know, chamber your first round, stand there in in perfect weaver stance and pop two off down the range, you know, evaluate it, comfortably bring it back to your chest and then place it back into your holster. He said, mate, none of that ever happens. He said, you'll feel like you're going to vomit. He said, you feel like you're going to pass out. You feel like the world is spinning around you. He said, you feel like your heart's going to beat out of chest. He said, we're all different. We all feel it differently. He said, some people just go into complete denial. They freeze, fight, fight or freeze. And he said, some people run away. And some people pull the revolver and they shoot and they don't know, they couldn't even tell you how many rounds they shot. Yeah. They're just standing there until their slide is in the lockout position mm-hmm. and then they zone back in and then they're shaking like a leaf while police are arriving and ambulance are arriving. And he said, and it's a complete shit show. So he said, none of that ever happens the way that you think it's going to happen because people don't train for it. They don't train to feel the stress. So when I used to train with Dudley, as I've revealed in small increments, Dudley used to sleep deprive you and then take you out on the range. He used to make you do sit-ups and push-ups until you you did throw up. He used to make you spin around in a circle, okay, until you were dizzy. And then, you know, but safely, I'm not saying, I'm not, like for people who listen to this going, oh, that sounds unsafe. You don't know what you're talking about. This man was a fucking genius. Of all the people I ever did my quals with, you had to do two qualifications a year. I used to go up to Dudley's with a group of other people or solo by myself and stay up there and talk stories with him and take him a meal and stuff like that. And this man spent a lot of time, he said, because 
you are a young guy and these are dangerous situations and sometimes just the fact that you're carrying a firearm will make somebody want to challenge you. Mm. And he said, and you've got to know whether you pull that or you pull your baton or whatever you got to do. And he said, but you've got to be in the right frame of mind. And Glenn, if you pull that firearm, you better be prepared to use it and you better be prepared to control it so you don't phase out and shoot a civilian standing in the background who was cowering for shelter while you're supposed to be protecting them. He said, see all the responsibilities that come to you. And the same thing happens with people. Now, I know we're talking about gunfighting. And again, I professed I'm not a gunfighter. All I've shot is soft targets of silhouettes of targets that are downfield. That's that's all I've ever fired at. And I've done hunting in the field. I've never had to pull it on a human being. I thought I was going to come close one day. That's it. The extent of my worry stories. But- I trained for it all the time and he took me to the closest part that he could for me as a civilian with the very, very limited capacity that I had to do that. I still had no experience in being in real-time combat like you did, like you were really in real-time combat. And it's different and I'm not saying it's the same, but when people go into trial, they feel dizzy. They feel like they're going to throw up. They feel like the you know they can't hear what people are saying their sensory capacity starts shutting down one by one. Sometimes you ask them a question, they don't even know where they are at the end of the day. Yeah. You know, like their mouth yeah. is so dry, they're looking at you and they're in a, they, they actually go into partial shock. Mm. They're completely overwhelmed by what actually happened. And it probably takes them about anywhere between half a dozen or more trials before they start settling down and then they start feeling comfortable and starting to enjoy it. And boxers do it, athletes do it, people who are doing tests do it. You say the word exam or assessment, even to NDTF people, block one, full of laughter, full of cheers, full of jokes. Start of the week in block two, the jokes are there, but they're not as intense as they are in block one. By the end of block two, none of the antics that happen in in the block one because they know they're being assessed. Mm. And even people who are used to being scrutinised or assessed, they're still much quieter than what they were at the start of the week. Mm. And I always watch that. I always observe it. I always know that I'm going to get emotional people. I always know that I'm going to get people that feel differently about it. We know this of ourselves and we have a lot of control about it, yet we project this onto our dog and expect them to perform like a fucking champion. When we're already going to shit, we're sweating, like you said before. We smell differently. We've got all these chemical hormones that are like they're excessively pumping out of our body that never happens at any other time that we feel stressed. Mm. And then your dog says, well, if you feel that way, you're the boss you're the provider, you're the hunter-gatherer in in this family. If you feel like this way, how the fuck am I supposed to feel about Mm. this? And that's really a cardinal sin that we all do. You know, like we've talked about all these unintentional pre-cues that we give our dogs, but what about all these unintentional behaviours that we have and still have the expectation and still want to kick the dog's ass after the trial because the dog didn't perform well? Yeah. I know whose ass needs to be kicked and it's not the dog's. Yeah. The dog's the product of its environment. Yeah, it's an assumption that the dog understands stress as being a problem for you and therefore thinks it's a problem for them. But Mm. even regardless, we don't need that for our proof in that like you're different. That's enough. Yeah. Like as we said, like your posture is different. If you haven't been as precise and intentional with your training for your dog to understand your verbal commands, whether the dog understands that you're happy, stressed, sad, mad, anywhere in between that, it's an assumption to say that they can – know what mental state you're in via your body language and your smell, but 
it's not an assumption to say it's different to the way it was trained. Yeah. Right. And so that for sure is a fact. And that is going to be a, a contributing factor. The dog is always reading all of those cues. And so I think like the punchline of all of this though is randomization. Yeah. To mm. Show the dog as many pictures as you possibly yep. can. But then also I think what's most important is understanding that what you perceive and what the dog perceive could be really, really different things from the point of like, what is the cue that starts the behavior or whether there even is a cue that starts a behavior. If it's an unwanted behavior, acknowledging that potentially you are starting it, like potentially you're, you're the first step in the, in the process of it mm. unfolding. Potentially that could be the case. You have to acknowledge that. And just kind of very often, I think, we don't give the dog the benefit of the doubt enough. The truth is it's not really going to change what you're going to do because you're going to have to re-educate the dog, right? So if the dog misinterprets something or if the dog anticipates a cue, you know, all those different things, your attitude, how you feel about it is what you're in control of, mm. right? But what you're going to do should be very similar regardless of kind of how you feel about it. Like you're going to re-educate the dog. You're going to say like, hey, that's not correct. Or to a degree to steal something that Karen Pryor wrote in the book, Don't Shoot the Dog, is in a situation where you can, and I have to insert that where you can, if the behavior is inevitable and it's going to happen to that cue, teach it and allow it to happen and then never cue the dog again to that behavior. Mm. So just eliminate the possibility that that cue is going to be given. Mm. So then the dog can't repeat the behavior again. Easier said than done. Yeah. Because a lot of these times these inadvertent cues that we give are unintentional, are unbeknownst to us, and they're sometimes things that we can't stop because they're part of our makeup behavior. Yeah, that's right. So if it's outside of our control, that's where you demonstrate to the dog, you're like, hey, you can't do that. Mm. Like here's punishment or, you know, whatever your modality for training. I could just don't have to go into the weeds on that. But however it is, but you got to take control of that cue and go like, oh, look, I'm not really sure what's happening, but you still can't do that regardless of whether it appears as though I'm giving you permission to or not. Mm. The thing that always comes to my mind, I'll never forget, was a long time ago I was doing, I know I've spoken about this on the podcast, but I was doing a consult with this lady who had what she told me was a very, very dangerous dog and it was dangerous at the doorbell. And that it was dangerous to people in the house. It was dangerous to anybody that was at the door. And it was only ever the doorbell that cued it in. Mm. And so I was like, okay, well, and she kept insisting that I had to see it. And I was like, I don't have to see it. I promise you, I don't have to see it. If it happens that I see it, I'll see it. But I don't have to come up to your house and ring the doorbell so the dog does that to me, right? Because I'm immediately on the back foot. Yep. <laughs> it's like me and you are going to meet in the street mm. and we're going to walk into your house together, right? So we do that. We go into this big, beautiful house and just the layout of the place happened to be, you couldn't recreate this. It was a one in a million fluke that it, I got to see this unfold the way that I did. But we're in the kitchen and it was this long house and the dog is, the, the, it was a kind of a weird two-story place. So we're on the second story and the entry point is below us and I'm in the kitchen and I'm looking over the house and I can see in the background the dog who's on its bed, right? And it's just this, Nice, sweet dog, right? And I'm talking to her and we're talking about what's happened in the past and who she's seen because I was, you know, one of many trainers and we're still getting the rundown. I'm still sort of trying to peel away all the layers to understand what the fuck's actually going on here as the doorbell goes off, right? And I'm like, well, I didn't want to see it, but I'm going to get to. And so I immediately refocus my vision. I'm looking at her the same way me and you are looking at each other now, mm. but the dog is like over her shoulder and 10 meters behind. Yep. And so I could just refocus on the dog and the dog looked at her, Yep. right? The doorbell was a cue 
And the dog looked at her and she started panicking and then the dog went fucking ballistic. Yep. (laughs) Yep. And I said, she was convinced the dog had like severe anxiety, right? And I said to her in that moment, I was like, do you have anxiety? (laughs) And she's like, oh, yeah, I'm a wreck, right? Like I've got all this stuff going on. I was like, I can't help. This isn't a dog problem. This isn't a dog problem at all. Like you are for sure creating the the conditions and Mm. it isn't the doorbell. It's not the doorbell. It's the doorbell sets you off and you set the dog off. Mm. And so I was like, this is a you problem. This is like, there's plenty we can do to desensitize, kind of condition the dog to the doorbell, but that's not going to help. Like I can do that now. And that's what we did. You know, like we got the manners minder and we went doorbell manners minder, doorbell manners minder, but she didn't react when she knew it was just me pushing the doorbell. You know what I mean? So like there was no, we weren't desensitizing the actual issue because I couldn't create the problem. Mm. Right. So that for me has always stuck with me. It was one of the, it was early days in my career and it was, you couldn't create a better scenario for me to see the whole thing play out. For me, I was like, you know, this isn't a dog issue. We need to desensitize you to the doorbell. And that is so far outside of my skill set. Like I made a joke. I was like, do you like chocolate? Because if you like, we can ring the doorbell, give you chocolate. (laughs) But I was like, I think there's something much more serious going on here. Mm. And I can give you the phone number of my friend Bertie who can probably help you through that. But this isn't a dog issue at all. The dog only has an issue with you freaking out and you have an issue with the doorbell, not that the dog has an issue with the doorbell. So those are the sorts of things like that to me on that day was so obvious. I could see it all play out. It stuck Mm. with me. This is, you know, eight years ago, right? Like I'll never forget it. But there are much less obvious versions of that happening all the time where the dog is like reading the cues of the people and going like, all right, this seems like a weird thing that you want me to do, but you gave me the signal. So away I go. Right. And I think it can be hard for people to come to terms with that, especially when it is something that's outside of their control also. Like, as I said to her, I was like, I can't help. I think the phrasing that most people bandy around is that you're so close to the problem that you can't see it's the problem. Mm. It's like a lot of people with their own type of behavior, whether it's infectiously good or they're toxic people, you know, like whether they inspire people or they're just toxic around a group of people. Sometimes they don't realize they're the common denominator, you know, like I've seen people before that inspire, but they don't think they're inspiring themselves, Mm -hmm. but they are. They're the common denominator. They're the type of people who lift people and raise people and build communities and do great things where other people are just total, you know, and they fucking bring people down and they destroy communities and they create a very poor and, as I said before, a toxic environment, but they don't realize it's them. They think it's the other people. And a lot of times the same thing that you did when you go into those households, they don't realize it's me. Mm. I think years ago in one of our episodes, we did and named the episode, It's Me, Isn't It? Yeah, yeah, we did. You know, and it's, I love when people have that recognition. You know, I love when people take responsibility instead of trying to find out who to blame or what to blame, they turn around and say, Yeah, look, I'm aware it's me. What can we do to work on me? Great. I'm glad you asked. Here's a list of tools that I think we can start working with. Yeah. I saw a Netflix show a while back, and I think it's called Stubbs or something like that, where it's Jonah Hill and his therapist. Oh, yeah. And his therapist is- He's trying to quit smoking or something? Is yeah, he? something like that. But they're talking about Jonah Hill, and he said, you know, like, I've had such a profound effect on this 
I wanted to share some of the things that were really bothering me and do a show on it. And you and I talk and it'd be like a genuine consult where I'm coming to you and we're talking through something. I don't want to make it fake. I want it to be real as real as you can be with cameras. And they said that and they laughed about how they had special effects to make it look like a real office. And he was wearing a wig and everything like that. But the therapist was saying sometimes people, when they go to therapy, the therapist is very slow with them and they're very deliberate in what they're doing. And, you know, like they want to take their time for the person to come to realization. And he said, but I have a different approach to this where I like to tell people, here's what I see as the problem. And he said, the reason I'm doing this and the reason I'm continuing to do this or words to the effect of is because I can see it has a better effect with some people. Like they want to be told this is the problem. Yeah, And I find readily that most of the time with dog training people, they're pretty good and they're pretty ready to receive it. However, you do get a bit of a, a crossover effect of people that don't like to take responsibility. As we said early in the episode, they'll do anything other than take responsibility, anything other than see themselves as the common denominator. They want to blame the dog and they want the dog punished over it, but don't realize this will never end because I continue to do it. Mm. And the dog believes that I need to do it because this is what keeps me safe or this is what creates an advantage in the home for me, or this is what my subconscious is now telling me to do because it's been programmed that way. Mm. You know, as you said, run the program. That's what the program is. Mm. Now I can't help it because the program has been subconsciously punched into my brain over the last six months of us being stuck in COVID together. I can't help but do it. Mm. And I want to do it now because it feels good. Mm. And that becomes the problem itself. I think even for people who take training really seriously, it can be a kick in the dick to realize that some of the issues in your dog that are really pretty easy to just call a genetic problem yep. are caused by you. Mm. And like, you know, I've had to confront that. Like there's certainly, there's some, my own dogs have like some anxiety in certain behaviors, right? And they're like, it's a hundred percent. It's very easy in the past. It's been very easy for me to say, well, you know, that's that kind of dog, right? You're never going to perfect this though. No, that, no, that's, totally. that's the thing. It's always ongoing. It's yeah. always learning the promises that you make yourself that you'll never do to the next dog. Yeah. You might not do that, but you'll do something else Well, especially, because, because you'll focus on that yeah. and you won't focus on the other thing that was just as important, but you kind of skipped over it because- you have traced those two dogs together and you believe this new dog is somewhat of a carbon copy of the other one. So I need to focus on the area where I fucked the other dog up yeah. and not this one because this isn't the problem area, but now you've made it the problem area because you weren't focusing on it. Yeah, totally. Mm. And, and I think that's something I struggle with personally because say Remy, for example, is a representation of my skills six years ago. Yeah. Now, like there's ongoing training all the time, right? Like, And he's you, aging too. Yeah. But, and his body is not the same. But like there's certain things that, he does in certain ways that when I tell people don't do that is because I did it. Yeah. Right? Like I know where that goes. And for me being a person who's obsessed with garnering as much knowledge as you can, like I have to use that information sometimes in places where it's not necessarily the perfect time for it because I have to practice it. I have to get good at it. Mm. So like, as is the case with most trainers who have a dog for a, a like a long period of time is that dog becomes my guinea pig, but my dogs are my guinea pigs. And I play with different types of training systems and different things because I'm learning all the time. I'm constantly looking outwards and trying to bring those skill sets inwards. 
And now and again, we get to experiment on client dogs. And But for the most part, the dogs that I train and I don't do the training. I, I just talk to the people. I explain to people. I might every now and again be like, uh, here, I'll show you a demo. But for the most part, most of my clients, I'm not getting to touch the dog. If I'm training the dog, it's usually that I'm the decoy or I might demo something very quickly for them. But for the most part, I'm explaining it. So I need to become proficient in those things that mm. I'll teach to others. And I need to be doing that to my own dog. So it's the dogs that I'm raising, but my own two dogs. And I think sometimes it's certainly it's something I've had to confront is that there's things that I've blamed on my dog and just been like, oh, you know, that's just who he is. It's not who he is. It's who mm. I made him. Right. And you have to sort of be like, oh, okay, I did that. And it's from, you know, a lack of guidance in a certain situation, or it could be from the wrong input in a certain situation. And with me, it's never that I'm not doing something. It's because I have done the wrong thing. It's never that like, I'm not like, I'm struggling to find the right word for it. Like, it's not that I'm ignorant to training it's that I have tried something and gone too far or mm. that I've not gone far enough or, you know, I've used the wrong technique that would work in a different scenario, just in, not in this picture. And that's how we learn, right? Like yeah, that's, you have to do this shit. Absolutely. Like I'm not upset about it. That's the reality of evolution. And if, if you can't acknowledge that, then you can't grow. Yeah. But it still is, it hurts to acknowledge it, right? Like it's still unpleasant, especially when the dog does something wrong and you go like, oh. It's on me. Well, you know, and it's easy to blame the dog. Like very often, like you see people and they say, oh, you know, the dog does this and, you know, it's just a motherfucker. That's what he does. And you go, show me the video. You go, no, you did that, mm. right? Like your posture changed this, that, like you can show people that. And like the way that I usually do that is very softly because it's been done to me mm. in a couple of ways, you know, like I've had people's like just pointed out pretty, and I can take it. Like I, you know, I, I don't mind being spoken to with the truth without sugarcoating, right? In fact, I prefer it, but it still hurts, yeah. you know? And so you've got to find a way to explain that to people. And we have to be able to do that to ourselves and be open to the idea of it because we do it to our clients all the time and they're ignorant of the problems that they cause, right? But for us within the industry and when we're helping each other, when we're critiquing each other, whether we're doing it with invitation or whether you can just see the problem, you know, I have specific language that I use around that. Like if I ne would never just reach out to a random person and say, hey, I see, a, I see an error in your training, right? Mm. For starters, it's my job to do that. But also like they'd probably tell you to fuck off, right? Like if you don't have a relationship with someone, but if it's someone I have a relationship with and they post a video, I always write to them like, hey, saw your video. Are you open to advice or nah? Right? And sometimes they say, yep, totally. And some people go, nah. And I go, cool. Either way. Yeah. Like it's no harm, no, no foul to me. We're mm. all on our own journey. Yeah. I don't think you're fucking up your dog. Like if someone was doing something unethical or problematic, like of, of course I'm going to take steps to that. But it's usually just when it's like, hey, you're walking down a road that I'm already a mm. fair way down and I don't like where it leads. So I'm going to turn around and tell you to not follow me. That's the sort of thing that I, I think that we have to be mature enough to be able to do and acknowledge that that isn't going the way you think it's going to go. I see that it looks like it is because I felt the same way. Mm. I got very excited about this and I, I ran down the path, but I'm trying to turn around and come back now. So don't follow me. And if someone cares enough to say that you don't have to implement it, but it at least should be considered. Yeah, totally. Like it, you should at least look at it and say, that's something that I can add to my arsenal of information. Totally. That you know, it may not be exactly to my dog, but it might be a variable that I can still plug in. And I think for the most part, people do. Mm. It just doesn't stop it hurting any. Oh, cool. You know I mean? Like, yeah. and I think that that's one of the things is no matter how good you get and no matter who you are, 
you can be very wrong. That's one of the incredible things that we see about scientists of the past and stuff like that. I love to use Skinner as an example, like so right about some things, but so incredibly wrong about other things. And with another 50 years of experience, we get to look back on that and be like, oh, you dumb, dumb. How did you not realize this? But (laughs) for sure, people will do the same of us. I think last week's episode, we were talking about eccentric people in their eccentric houses. I think people are prone to eccentricities in a lot of ways because when they get into a system, and I see this with a lot of people who become popular, as soon as they become popular, they become somewhat eccentric to the public Mm. because they're being told how wonderful they are and how right they are often. Because I used to work in TV studios and and watch talent being moved in and out, watching the suck-ups rolling around with them and telling them that they can do no wrong and that they're the most wonderful people, giving them these artificial pep talks while they're walking from the green room to the stage and then from the stage back to the green room. It's fucking sickening. Mm. These people have become numb to the realities of the world. They don't question whether things are right or wrong anymore. They just believe I am all right all the time. Mm. And that sort of thing happens. It happens, as I said, I see it in dog training and I've suffered from it myself where I've thought I'm right all the time. Mm. You know, my word is gospel. That's only true if you can actually generate the results on a regular basis, not with just with your own selected dog, your perfect genetic dog that you spend a fortune and all the time in the world finding, but you need to replicate that across the board. It needs to be for the good, the medium and the, the, yeah. and the terrible dogs. But then there's layers to that as well. Like you being able to do it is cool. But other You've got people to pass being, it on to the other, well, person, other yeah. people being able to do it. Yeah, that's so right. One of the things that some styles of dog training are very physical. Yes. You know, like you've got to be fucking fit to yep. be able to do them. And I mean like fitter than me. You know what yep. I mean? Like I don't mean like, you know, reasonably fit. Like I mean you've got to be really in shape to be able to do some of the styles of dog training. And the people like look that, at agility. Like those fucking women are gonna run around the bloody field like crazy with their dogs. Exactly. And yeah. but I mean even not just the games, like I mean the styles of training, right? Yeah. And I think one of the things that is interesting to me anyway, and certainly like, like I said, I put myself heavily in this basket previously. I'm trying hard to get out of it. I feel like I am, mm. but is it's like, this is the way. And it, it's Are like- you the Mandalorian? Well, <laughs> but it's like, it's like, no, that's our way. And, yeah. and given the set of circumstances, the dog, you, the thing you're training for, it's the way, and you've done a fucking great job. Mm. But put in a new handler and- it's a whole new kettle of fish, right? Put in a handler who isn't as fit as you or put in a handler who doesn't have the, the capacity to move the way you do. Put yeah. in a handler with a severe injury. Put in a handler in a wheelchair. Like how, how far do you want to take this? It just this? can't be a fixed pattern of thinking. It can't be. Mm. And so for me, you know, you see some styles of training are indirect reward from the jump, right? Yep. Like let's start free shaping right from the get-go and we know that we want to finish an indirect in an indirect reward, so let's start in that place. Other styles of training are – direct reward all the way through, right? Mm -hmm. And you see people who are incredibly successful with multiple dogs in both those styles of training, right? But there's pros and cons to both of those. Yeah. And and some people, what you think is a pro, other people think is a con, Mm. right? And so there isn't a right or wrong. There's just varied shades of like, is it fit? Does Does it it function? Does it work? Yeah. Is it fit? Does it function? Yeah. And throughout all the different types of training, there's a lot of variables that go into that. And if you change one of the variables, you might have to change the system. So it could be the type of dog. It could be the type of handler. It could be the type of tools. It could be the place that you're training with. It could be the reinforcement style. It could be all these different things. Mm. I had, I didn't get trolled, but I had 
clearly someone shared an Instagram post of mine into a community of people who certainly don't like training the way I do. Because right? <laughs> I had a bunch of comments come in. Yeah. And it was when I posted something about the use of negative reinforcement. Yep. There was like no trolling, but there was just some like jacuzzi type questions, right? Yep. But none of them wrote back because I answered the questions and none of them were interested because I didn't just hold a firm line. I was like, well, that's interesting. But given these sets of circumstances. So one of them was I said, you know, behaviors taught with negative reinforcement are extremely persistent and less prone to extinction, right? That's a fact. Mm. That You can fucking read the science, right? That's a fact. Yeah, there's comments, oh, like what? Just name one behavior that is better taught with negative reinforcement. And I'm like, okay, show me the dog, show me the handler, show me the type of negative reinforcement they intend to use, show me the type of positive reinforcement they intend to use. And with that picture... I'll tell you which behaviors are likely better taught with negative reinforcement, right? And where those behaviors are going to be taught and where those behaviors are going to be need, need to be recalled absent the reinforcer. And now I have the information that will help me decide whether I'm going to teach those behaviors with negative reinforcement or positive reinforcement. But without all those, those details, I can't tell you which behaviors are better taught with negative reinforcement or positive reinforcement. I have no idea because that's going to be variable. Interesting that you're having this discussion because a colleague and I were talking about this the other day and they were mentioning Michael Ellis in Mm -hmm. some of the phrases that he gives people as a, it's pretty much what I call the fulcrum answer. Mm -hmm. It depends. Mm. That frustrates the fuck out of people when they get that answer. However, it leads to another line of outcomes in the responses that you're giving to conclude what needs to be done. And it does depend. That is a perfectly structured and a perfectly suitable answer to give to people because what they want is definitive and singular. It sometimes isn't. There are so many variations that come into it that you have to understand it does depend. The variability can depend on what you did today and how you dressed and how you look today. That can depend. And then people won't accept that. They go, I don't accept that. Well, fuck you. If you don't accept that, you're not taking responsibility for the variables that do occur in life and will occur in life and how it affects outcomes with people that you're around or dogs that you're training because it does depend. It's funny you say that of Mike Ellis, right? So when I was at his school- yep. You know, I watched all the DVDs and all the things, right? Like, you know, I think I, like many people, he was, you know, he's where I learned of market training. He was the foundation of learning of a lot of the stuff that I know because it's early days, everyone could buy the Learberg DVDs and blah, blah, blah. Yep. And like, don't tell Ed, but like <laughs> <laughs> people would share those DVDs around, you know what I mean? Like, oh, Ed. <laughs> Ed will start shooting. <laughs> so anyway- you see him answering questions in the – yeah, because the DVDs are just classes that were filmed. And yep. see him answering questions and I thought, fuck, this guy's got the patience of a saint, right? But I saw that go down live when I was there and he was feeding this dog and this lady asked like, oh, oh Michael, that's not the food that you – like I think he did an ad or something. Like he, he recommended some food. That's not the food that you said that I should feed my dog. <laughs> and he's like, well – and he launches into this 20-minute – incredible spiel in which I took notes. And this was just, this wasn't even part of the course. This was just him feeding his dog. Yep. I'm hammering down notes. He's explaining, you know, like uh, the evolution of gut microbiome and all this kind of stuff. And essentially told them that like each dog will perform differently on different foods. And this dog performs well on this food. And this is why I'm feeding this food to this dog. And 
Like the answer was it depends, yep. but with a lot of explanation, not just it depends and open-ended like that. It depends on all these variables yep. and those are going to change the 100%. different things. He gives this giant explanation and she just looks straight at him and goes, but what should I feed my dog? <laughs> Did he say it depends? No. <laughs> Dead straight face. He's like, what do you feed now? She says a name. He goes, oh, that's the one. Yeah, that, that's the one you should feed your dog. Right? Like just, uh, <laughs> but the patience of a saint, like incredible. Oh, mate, he's one of the most beautiful people in the world as incredible. far as dog trainers. Like, incredible. I don't even think he could rattle that guy. No. Not only did a lot of my dog training come from him, but a lot of the my instructional technique I learned from mm. him. Um, well, he's certainly a person worth replicating or at least being institutionalized or advised by. Absolutely. Yep. All right. I reckon we've sort of... Yeah, that was all good, the bases. Uh, yeah, that's a good topic, and we've just come to the conclusion that it depends. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Isn't that something that seniors wear? <laughs> it depends. <laughs> <laughs> good news, everyone. Yes. Did you see I started the MailChimp process? I did. We're getting an email list. Yes. However, they're doing a call with me to teach me how to use the program as is part of the sign-up, and that's not for a couple of weeks. But at some point, we are going to put into our Facebook group. Yep. Join our mailing list. Yes. Please do that. There's two things about that. First of all, social media is changing. We've discussed this, discussed that like reach is not the same anymore. Mm. It's all very different. We want to be able to stay in touch with you guys. We want to be able to tell you when things are happening. They're trying to lure you into the metaverse. Yeah. And so we want to develop a direct line to you guys without having to rely on the distribution given to us by the platforms that just to decide on what you see and what you don't, right? So we want to develop a direct line to you guys. So soon enough, there will be a link that we'll be posting. I'm going to post it like many times. And because, you know, what happens is like that group that we have, there's, you know, 10,000 people in the group. As an admin of the group or as an owner of the group, I can see the stats on that. Like anyone that's an admin or an owner of a group will explain to you, you can see that if you're not one. I can see who sees the posts, like not specifically who, but the number Mm. and like, you know, 1200 people will see something that I post. That's all. And so when we say, Hey, join our mailing list, you're not all going to see it. So we need you guys to help. Like just if you are are one of the 1200, that's going to see it. Make it viral. That's what you're trying to say. Well, you're going to see it many times because I'm going to post it many times. And it's not that people aren't joining. It's that we need like a different sample pool to see it. And if you can share it to your friends, that would be good because we're trying to develop a direct line to you guys. We won't spam you. It'll just be like when interesting things are happening. Canine related stuff, industry related stuff. Well, and the podcast related stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I mean. We're doing an event or something. We'll be able to tell you via that and not just rely on that hopefully Zuckerberg decides it's okay for you to see it. Yep. So we're about to do that. That'll happen soon. But anyway, that's it. Another episode. Can I parrot on? Yeah. As always, like what you hear, just like, rate, share, subscribe, join our mailing list. Are you doing the William Shatner version of the close down? (laughs) (laughs) Get on the mailing list. It's going to be there any minute. Yep. Get on that. Absolutely. Uh, I'm going to add new things to the end of this. I I love a guy called Ryan Holiday. He's the Daily Stoic guy. And at the end of every video he does, he says, I hope you like this video. I hope you subscribe. But what I really hope is that you join my mailing list. Ah. I'm going to add that. I'm going to steal that. I like it. I like it. Yeah. Well, he's got a million followers, so it must work. Well, it's definitely got nothing to do with his amazing content. It's just because of the thing that he says at the end. Must be. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, like the do show. That. Do all that. Yep. If you want to get in contact with us, if you want to support the show, Patreon, get mm. in there. We've got a lot of stuff going in there now. Yes. I've, I'm putting a lot more stuff in there from seminars because 
I'm making a whole new online course and the seminar stuff I now feel pretty comfortable to put into Patreon. So nice. every month there'll be a piece of one of the seminars going in there. Yep. Just a chunk for you to enjoy, maybe learn something, just enjoy me talking. Yep. As well as live stream every month. It's just stay in there. It'll be awesome. Yep. Cool and if they want to upgrade their knowledge and database, they yep. can do your new course. Yes. That's a little while off. So they just go to your operant canine. No, not now. It's a year away. But you'll advertise it. Yes. You'll let I'll, I'll advertise yes. it. Don't you fucking worry. Yeah, that'll be on the mailing list. I'll advertise <laughs> it. Don't you worry. Yep. The mailing list will get it. Yep. All right. If you want to get in contact with us, jump into the discussion group. Be cool in there. 1,200 of you will see the, the posts. Mm. And if you want to get in contact with us, you shoot us an email. We are info at thecanineparadigm.com. Goodbye. Ah, we didn't do Teespring. Oh, yeah, get a T-shirt. Buy it. Get it in Teespring or Spring. There's links in the show notes. Yep. Wherever you're listening, scroll up, find a link, buy a cool shirt. Yep. I do love it when I go to stuff and people wearing the shirt. When I went down to Hilton Riser the other week, people wearing the shirt. I saw people doing the latest Bart Bellin seminar. Yep. Or the- Oh, the new Nepo The Bellins, I yep. should say. The Bellins- um, yep, the new Silver Silver school. and Gold. And I saw people that were advertising they were going there wearing a canine paradigm top. What a treat. What a bunch of champs. We appreciate you. We really do. All right, goodbye. Bye.